This is Jose Herrera with the O3XX series. Today's special guest is my marine brother, Robert Elliott. I met Robert back in 2015 at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Meeting him was a godsend as I was trying to understand the world of agriculture and share with my fellow veterans the healing power in ag. I've watched over the years Robert's work reshape the agriculture industry and the role that veterans play within agriculture. His efforts are beyond exemplary and will become the model for states to follow in the near future. Personally, Robert has been a beacon of hope and inspiration in some of my darker days. To this day, Robert remains a pillar for the veteran community, and I am honored to call him my brother. Yeah, that's the way to be. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, if it helps somebody else, why not? So... I mean, at this point, there's not a lot left for me to hide, I guess. <laughs> it's all yeah, come uh, out in pieces somewhere or another. Yeah. Paul, I was sharing with uh, Robert how I was, uh, in, I was just communicating with a guy who lives in uh, Western Ukraine, um, oh, wow. former, former U.S. Army uh, combat engineer, uh, but he's over there working with dudes on the front line, and they were asking for uh, IFACs because they're long medical equipment for the guys fighting on the front lines. So I'm trying to coordinate that with, with some guys. Um, and, you know, again, you know, they're, they're requesting for uh, medical supplies, but yeah, that situation is getting a little bit uh, more serious, I guess. Yeah. I saw a little bit about that. Um, I was reading a little bit about that last night and I'm just like, dude, you know, not that I know that's not, that's not us, but everything that happens in the world like this at that at that scale it affects us directly you know and i know they're sure. you know they're talking about sanctions and whatever and it's like man if if you if there are people that want to fight and kill each other for whatever reason cutting them off economically isn't gonna do yeah it might it might it might hurt them but they're still gonna fight i mean they're gonna say oh no you know don't mess with our economy when you go to war the when you go to war the economy tanks anyway everywhere globally typically unless you're producing I mean, for them yeah and i mean what's, what's going on with the economy on a world scale now anyway you know it's a little bit burning yeah so i was watching some video the other day that was talking about tens of Tens of trillions have disappeared from the U.S., just disappeared flat out. Um, and tracing that money back is kind of tracing back towards this larger picture of global government mm -hmm. and where that's all going. But a little bit concerning stuff. You know, I try not to go too far down the rabbit holes, 
but all the same, it's interesting times we live in. Yeah. 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 I was, uh, Rumsfeld. Uh, yeah. This is going to get a little bit of conspiratorial, but <laughs> right before 9 11 <laughs> happened, uh, Rumsfeld was supposed to deliver a speech regarding how $2.3 trillion disappeared. And then yeah. I guess like some of the commentary was like, well, it didn't necessarily disappear. It just went somewhere else and they didn't record um, actual, like something about receipts. And then I think a couple of years ago or a few years ago, there was an article talking about how I think around $8 trillion was lost and unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. And, and it went back to, it's always going to go back to that 20 year period where we were sustaining uh, multiple operations across the span of the Middle East and Africa. Uh, and I can't remember who it was, but there was a Aegis. Remember that contracting company, Aegis? I think they had like spent like $80 million and they couldn't account for it or something like that, that the Americans had um, given them in order to do whatever contracts. And uh, which led to, I think it's kind of, um, it's dilution in terms of being able to do any type of work overseas, but 80 million just went gone like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the same thing I was listening to. And I think, I think a lot of it was actually wrapped up in HUD and disappeared out of HUD or FHA or something like that. You know, it was, it was money that was, that was switching companies and companies were switching hats and stuff like that, but it was all tracing back towards defense contract. And that's where the money officially disappeared. It seemed like, I think is what I was, what I was reading or hearing. So the war machine. Yeah. 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 There's a, you know, lots of money in there. Lots of money in there. Yeah. The last time I read in uh, offshore accounts, it was like $24 trillion which accounted for like 10% of the world's uh, wealth was in offshore accounts. And then recently, I think that spiked up to like 30 trillion. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's kind of where I kind of agree with uh, some of the more progressive political groups is that, you know, I'm all about, you know, you're earning your keep, you know, making money and then, you know, allowing those jobs uh, to basically be in the community, you know, but the overabundance of wealth that has sustained these lineages uh, across time um, is, is a bit old. And uh, yeah, it's always, it's always the little people or, you know, us caught in between that are the ones that are going to suffer the most because these people want to play God. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it seems to me there's, there's a lot of things happening too quick. Um, like this entire metaverse thing where, you know, we're going to digitize reality. Um, you know, to me, is that something to keep everybody entertained and plugged in? Or, you know, what is it? Uh, it, it? It just doesn't seem healthy to me in any way, shape, form, or fashion. It seems more like an enslavement tactic. So I'm not sure. What do you guys think about all that? <laughs> Yeah, Jose could could uh, run this thing for eight hours, but you know, he he knows well. a, he knows a lot more than I do about it. But you know, I I think 
so I, I'm kind of into technology. You know, I love the way things progress and how things can become more simplified and easier for people. Like every everything's a tool and technology is one of them. The issue becomes when when people that don't understand what they're getting themselves involved with, yeah. you know, that that's what ends up happening. That's where the problems come, you know, and we talk a lot on here about like, you know, about the youth and kids growing up and everything. And, you know, we talk about shit like smartphones. It's like, you know, yeah. this is this is my best friend, not because I want to go on here and watch videos, but it's my problem solver. You yep. there, there is no challenge in life that you can't solve through this thing. And, yep. you know, it, it, I just think so many people, especially kids, are using it the wrong way. Um, and that's probably what's going to continue right. happening as as this 5G, you know, whole metaverse world continues. It's going to consume them. They're not going to they don't have that buffer zone where they can, you know, once they start getting into it and and be able to self-analyze and step back and be like hold on this is not this is not the path i need to go i need to kind of backpedal and assess where i'm where this is leading my life to um yeah yeah i mean you know with, with just the facebook thing it's like everybody puts out the best representation of themselves that they think the rest of the world would actually want to see and, you know, it, it's never any of the bad, it's always the good. So I feel like the metaverse is something to where you can just plug into that 24 seven and, you know, all your problems disappear, and, you know, you can just live virtually and whatever. I mean, what, once we figure out how to, how to bridge the gap, which I think we've done with Zoom, what we're on right now, bridging the gap between human productivity being in a virtual space then yeah. sky's the limit for a metaverse you know and 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 then i don't know if you guys have ever watched that television show black mirror but yeah. um yeah the, there's there's one where you know this girl the whole world is ranked off of their social credits yeah and i know china's developing something like that now or has something like that now or testing or whatever but you know th this girl's life is wrecked off of one little thing that she did with cancel culture affected her you know just on a massive scale and that does not seem too far from reality for me you know from where we're at right now it's just insane and it looks like the wind is going to kick up i was hoping to sit out here in the sunshine but i guess it's not going to happen so i don't know is that blowing in in the mic too bad no, we're good. I, no. I can hear you clearly right now. Yeah. Okay, good. But yeah, man, essentially all, all the human nature is going to follow us into the metaverse. And if not, some actor is going to create the outerverse and create all the fornication and just replicate everything that, because it's only, I mean, I, I personally feel that there's going to be communities that go into it that want the, you know, like, oh, this is like the, the utopia that I've been waiting for. And then for those who are like, yeah, this ain't cutting. I need some raw stuff. Yeah, they're gonna head to the outer verse, and then they're just gonna do whatever you know. It's gonna affect you know the psychophysiological you know framework of who we are, yep. and uh, yeah, it's gonna create some serious problems in terms of like isolation and and just how augmented realities uh, affect us on a day to day. Uh, it's it's nuts, but. It's a part of our world. There are solutions to it. 
um, I keep saying, which is going to tap into the mental health thing, but I'm forecasting right now. I'm using the term right now. And I'm just basically saying, look, we live in a post-influence operations world. We live in a post-psychological operations world. We've recognized the plot. We've recognized the weaknesses. We've recognized how it works. Uh, but what we're not talking about is the mental health implications, how weaponized content actually affects the neurochemistry, the psychological aspects of identity and role, and what yeah. that means in terms of impact. And that's kind of, you know, the focus that I've, I've been on like the past few weeks. And part of this goes into a couple of meetings I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have actually beginning on Monday uh, regarding mental health infrastructure and how we go about establishing a reference point so that uh, one, we can get actually boots on the ground or mental health operations teams moving forward in terms of crisis response and prevention. Yeah. And uh, I know... I think what kind of binded us together was ag had a, a lot of um it was like a tether right it brought you back to the baseline and, and i know whenever i got out and i met mark and i started you know doing all the ditch digging and all the hard labor uh, i was kind of reminded why i loved you know the outdoors why i loved being part of a community sure in some of the most remote places and uh, for me, it's always been a game changer and I always felt that without sustainable ag or without any type of experiential modality uh, like farming, uh, that we were going to lose a big part of, of who we were. And uh, this idea of, you know, humanity, I know that that word has come to mean many, many different things today, but in a sense, it, it brings us still together in terms of like, the bond and that's kind of what I found in farming was here's a group of guys willing to go into a, a field of work yep. and a literal field of work that nobody else wants to do, do all the dirty business that nobody else wants to do. Yep. And uh, at the end of it, all you have is each other. All you have is your harvest. Sometimes a harvest isn't good enough, hey, but you keep on going. Uh, and it was very much a reminder of the Marine Corps. And, uh, yep. I was wondering, man, if, if you could just kind of like tap into a little bit of your background and how you got into ag, uh, maybe your childhood. I know we've spoken about it a little bit. So you want the abbreviated story or the, the big story? However you want to do it, whatever your yeah. favorite version is. Well, you know, there, there's so many parts to it that make up the whole. So um i grew up with my aunt and uncle on my family's farm that was land granted to us by king george prior to the american revolution and you know over the years it it passed down from generation to generation and i was the last generation um we're talking about a thousand acres just north of raleigh um that was tobacco production primarily here in, in North Carolina and the Southeast, which is the main production that you'd see uh, back in those days. But the we, we did tobacco production, we did commodity crop production, soybeans, corn, stuff like that. And, you know, we also raised cows and, and all of those things. And, um, you know, when 
in the 80s, farming, farming and farmers took a massive hit based off of market downturns and a lot of other things that were going on within the agricultural space. Um, farms were being lost by the thousands per day or hour. I don't know the, those data, but it was a really bad time for agriculture as a whole. And what, what wound up happening was our farm was no different in that. Um, we got hit as well. And we were one of the lucky ones, you know, that we're talking about, I was probably 10 or 11 at the time. But we were one of the lucky ones where we could sell off all of the equipment, all the cattle, um, any kind of liquidated liquid asset that we had, we could sell it off at what you call a farm sale. And these auctions happen pretty much every week um, in the Southeast still to this day where, you know, big farmers lost everything and now they're selling out of everything, trying to maintain the land. Um, you know, when, when you grow up a farm kid like me, um, you're told and rather taught that one day this is yours. Uh, this is the family's legacy. It's up to you to sustain it and make sure that, you know, it continues on. Um, kids like me, we were taught that all the time, but for me growing up in the eighties and nineties and seeing the struggles my folks constantly were battling between, you know, loss on this crop market falling today or um, when seed cleaning operations, my family were, were seed cleaners, which when a, historically when a farmer gleans their crop, they save a portion of seed to plant for next year if it's a good crop, right? And it only makes sense. It's, it's sustainable. It's a sustainable model. But when GMO crops were introduced into the system, um, what was happening was there's cross-pollination in the corn crop by air, you know, because corn can cross-pollinate at ridiculous amounts of miles through the air. So when you have a patented corn variety that pops up or, you know, let's say soy, for instance, or whatever, um, and you have air cross-pollination occurring, what happens is, is the resultant crop that may not be a GM crop is going to be a GM crop once it starts to fruit or once it starts to develop the ears of corn or the seed or whatever. So what was happening during those days was you had inspectors coming out and checking your crop and you're saving seeds. Well, they've cross-pollinated with a patented GM pollen and now it exhibits the gene of that patent in your crop. So essentially now you're under patent infringement without a contract. Um, and that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the reasons that they were able to shut down the entire industry of seed cleaning was because it, it essentially infiltrated everybody's crop. Uh, farmers were no longer allowed to save seed anymore because now your seed is tainted because it's got this new GMO gene in it, thanks to air pollination, cross-pollination by air. Uh, so seed cleaners were getting sued. Farmers were getting sued um, by the GM manufacturer. I'm not going to go into company names here, but uh, I I'm pretty sure y'all 
probably know one of the ones that I'm talking about, the big one. Um, and it wound up killing off a tremendous amount of farms. And, you know, we talk about conspiracy theories and stuff, but this is not a conspiracy theory in the least bit whatsoever. You can go look this up. You can go listen to speeches from the very last Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Berger, um, where he openly talks about USDA's plan of go big or get out. And what go big or get out essentially means was it was a shakeout of control of the farms across the landscape. Uh, since USDA became a thing and we started comp competing in global markets. Now what it meant, what it ultimately means is that there's, there's a, there used to be a wide distribution of small, medium and large scale farms. And that's both in terms of revenue and acreage. But, you know, from a Marine Corps perspective, is it easier to control a squad or a platoon from a one person point of view? You know, what you had back in those days was an entire division. Well, we don't want to control a division. We want to control a squad. So what do we do? We give the squad more guns, more tools, more everything they need. And we're only working with a small percentage of farmers, you know, instead of having to work with everybody. So they shook out the mid and small scale farms and turned it into big farms today. That's what we have today, literally. So as you drive down the road and you see farms change in landscape, you see a different farm homestead, uh, you know, two or three miles down the road, you see a different farm homestead. The thing to pay attention to is even though they look like different farms, the crops as you're driving down the road are completely the same. The reason being is because you have one big farmer in that area that is controlling all of that land now because they shook out the other farmers. Um, and that's, that's what we're seeing starting to trickle into all the rest of the, the industries today, the sub-industries like horticulture and stuff like that. You know, things outside of agricultural food and commodity crop production is, is what we're starting to see today. We're starting to see tighter and tighter controls being implemented on farms that are commercial producers of any sort of agricultural commodity, whether that's, you know, um, anything from forestry or over to the fisheries sector or horticulture or, you know, you name it. You see tighter and tighter controls with a bigger corporation controlling the whole thing. Now, the paradox in that, and I know I'm kind of going off on a, on a tangent, but I've got to set the stage for you. Um, the paradox to that is that there's so many people in the world and those people ultimately don't really care where their food comes from or they're just ignorant to the fact of where it comes from. So those are the folks that have to be fed and sustained by commercial agriculture. There's only a small percentage that still wants to go local. I want to know what's in my food. I want to know what you're spraying the crop with. I want to know what's you know, how you're raising that cow that becomes the beef or is producing the milk for my family or yada, yada, yada. So today what you have left over is a huge division. All of the mid-scale farms are pretty much wiped out. You have extremely large scale farms and extremely small scale farms that are sustainable in design that are doing the chickens and the goats and the pigs and stuff like that and small scale um, vegetable production 
stuff like that. That's ultimately what we have today. And my farm, my family's farm, went both directions. Um, prior to me going into the Marine Corps, we were uh, we were large-scale commodity crop farmers. Um, when everything was tanking and falling apart, uh, my mom's last, my mom, who I refer to, she's my aunt, but you know, she raised me on the farm. Her last, her last URI into farming was to become a meat goat producer for ethnic markets in North Carolina. And at one time she was the largest meat goat producer in the state prior to going crazy. And a lot of other farms picking up the slack on meat goat production. Um, right before I left for the Marine Corps, uh, we were we were ramping up to around 2,000 head of, of uh, meat goats here on there on the farm, and um, it was a massive massive undertaking. But growing up and watching my folks go through the struggles, based off of some of the stuff that I've just talked about, you know my folks were prime targets for getting shaken out of the industry. Um, you know, and basically if you look at any, I, I talk about this in every single one of my, my um, public talks that I give, and I'm going to say it here. Farmers are the only business people on earth that do not analyze their costs of production into pricing their product you know anything that you ever develop as a business you're trying to look at the cost look at direct cost indirect cost overhead and then a profit margin to build company and corporate capital but farmers don't do that they're the only business people in the world producing an actual product that are the price takers where the contract says, we're paying you this much and we will not pay you anymore. And historically grain prices have been and commodity crop prices were set based off of the farmer that was the hungriest. They get to gleaning harvest time. And they, you know, the first one that comes up may not be the one that's hungriest with a lot of debt. Um, farmers are typically controlled by debt. And what they do is they wait for that hungriest farmer whose debt loan is, is coming come due or they're about to lose their farm. So they'll take a cheaper price point off of, the, off of that commodity crop when it comes time to sell it. You know, they're just like, give me the money now. I've got to have the money now. You know, so they'll take less for what you should actually be getting. And they're able to, to cut down the price and turn that into the market price overall across the board. Um, contract chicken is one of the biggest ones that is has been a massive detriment to farms in recent years and basically the way that works is that the farmer has to get the loan to buy the house and get the loan to set up the infrastructure they bring out the chickens in the feed and you just raise out the chickens for eight weeks and then send them on and then they bring you a new batch well they give you all these great figures of how much money you're going to be making um by doing this operation uh with with chicken houses when you drive down the road and you see these big chicken houses and stuff where they could be hog houses one of the two but depending on the smell you can kind of tell the difference but what chicken big chicken has done is 
they let you pay off your debt. You know, one of these houses can cost anywhere from a million to five mil. Um, they let you pay off your debt and then they give you a couple of years of bringing in money without debt. And then they come back and they're like, you know what? We really want you to go ahead and get these, uh, upgrade your chicken house so that, you know, you've got these new improved heaters or we want you to put these open windows in your house so that you can, we can get some sunlight in here and the chickens can, you know, do this, that, and other, and we can market them this way or that way. Now, there the farmer has got a choice. Either I go ahead and go back into debt or I just say, screw it, I'm done and get out. And if they get out, they lose their contract. There is no one else to get a contract with. There is only that contract in front of them. Um, if they network with another farmer um, that's growing chickens under the same contract, obviously, but what'll happen is, is they'll get penalized because under the guise of biosecurity, because you don't want biosecurity issues occurring where you're tracking in any kind of pathogen from your farm to another farm. And that's, that's taken away the entire networking of farmers that existed long before. Um, we've essentially taken farmers and been able to make them compete against each other. And the last time we saw farmers actually making money uh, doing commodity crops um, or commodity livestock production was back when they still worked together on a massive scale. Now there's, there's of course exceptions to the rule because you know, if you, if you do a good job and you're doing really well and you're working really well with the contract and all that kind of stuff, um, you're, you're probably going to make out better than the next guy down the road or the next woman down the road. But as a general whole, we have shaped the entire agricultural universe, if you will, in the U.S. to having massive controls put in place upon farmers. And that's, that's, that all started big time. They, they kind of slammed the gas on that in the 80s. Uh, so digressing, watching my folks go through this as it was shaping into what it was, what it's become today. And you know, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of alcohol. Um, it was a lot of tears. And, you know, I remember the day that, that my mom said, I've got to get out of farm and I just can't do this anymore. And, you know, she probably cried for two or three weeks straight because to a farmer, a legit farmer, you know, the, this is a lifestyle. It's a way of life. We're not doing it for the money at all. And, um, Again, there are exceptions to the rule where some people do make out with with you know money in an agricultural operation. But they're extremely rare success stories, and they're extremely well thought out, laid out plans of where we're going to make the entrance into the industry and where we're going to pull out. Um, so I go into the Marine Corps. Um, and to be honest with you, I hated farming growing up. I absolutely hated it. It was not the work that I hated, but it was all of the, the stress and the depression and, you know, not knowing what's coming from for, you know, anything we needed. Um, my folks were not business people in any sense of the word and had no clue about anything business related. 
my grandfather was. And then back in his day, he was he was doing really well because that was back when you could still do well with farming. Um, but my folks, they 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 never grasped any of the business sense that's needed or principles in business in order to make something work. Um, so watching that constant struggle was the part that I hated. And you know, I'm not alone in this. There's there's so many. I mean, you know, my demographic of born into it commodity crop farmer or large scale farmer all of us because we see how the entire game is rigged so bad against somebody like us that could be an up-and-comer and people like me we realize that i've got more of a chance of making me with farmland by opening up a shooting preserve or turning it into a wedding venue or turning it into a petting zoo if I'm in a good location than I ever will doing any kind of farming endeavor. So, um, you know, our, our options are we stick it out in the rural area we grow up in and we try to take over the farm and we know how hard it's going to be. Um, we try to find a job in the local area, we go to college, or we join the military. That's pretty much our only options when you're somebody like me growing up. And of course, none of those options seemed very fun to me at all whatsoever. Um, I make a joke when I speak a lot of the times that I joined the Marine Corps because it was easier than farming. And in a lot of ways it was. Um, but at the, end, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's true. It's true. You know, you take orders, you get yelled at, you do what you're told and you go home. Um, yeah, shit, I do that on the farm every day. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And in fact, I had one of the guys that used to help on the farm. He became a Marine Corps DI and he heard I had, I had joined the, the delayed entry program and stuff. And he swung by the farm when he was home on leave one day. And, you know, he was a hat. He was like, yeah, you're not going to have any problems. Those farm boys don't have no problems. It's the city kids we got to worry about. And it's like, yeah, all right, well, that's good to hear. So, you know, go in, keep my head, keep my, keep my eyes straight and, you know, sound off when I'm told to and all that good stuff and do what I'm told. And, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I chose the Marines just because of the dress blues. Nobody told me when I signed up that I had to go buy the damn things. So I was kind of pissed off about that. But anyway, you know, I was like, hey, when I, when I walked into the recruiting station, Air Force door was shut. Army was this fat sack of assholes. And, um, you know, the, the Navy guys were in their Cracker Jacks there that day. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm wearing that, man. I'm, I'm just sorry. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work for me. So, you know, Marines were the only ones that would not get out of their chairs to come talk to me in the recruiting station. You know, sort of, they were sort of like, no, screw that shit. You come in here if you want to talk to us. I'm like, all right, that'll work. Yeah, you guys are, you guys are cool. So I joined the Marine Corps um, and I did five years. I was a C-130 mechanic. Uh, and when they when they figured out that I could turn a wrench, they were taking me a lot of different places, uh, especially when I was stationed in Okinawa. But, you know, when I got to North Carolina 
and they were like yeah we don't want you you're you th this is where people's dreams come to die is is north carolina i'm like no got it well yeah definitely i'm back home now that's for sure um but anyway so you know i had uh wound up with a little knee surgery and stuff when i was in and it busted up and stuff and they were like yeah we're not we're not gonna let you re-enlist and all that good stuff so i got out and went to work for a contracting group that had just started up with uh with an old gunny of mine and stuck around for that and i'm not a combat veteran i never will claim to be of course um but what i did experience when i was in the marine corps was i watched one of the Marines I was with um, shoot himself in the head um, right in front of me and kind of missed it all of us and all of that good shit. And that was something that I just would not talk about ever. Um, I walked in on another kid hanging um, and got him down and tried to, you know, help him out and it didn't work out. But for the life of me, it was like I, I, I never could, you know, when you go in the Marines and it, it's sort of like they instill this switch in you, you turn the shit off when you need to turn it off, you turn it on when you need to turn it on and shit, you know, it's sort of like, I'm just going to leave that switch off forever. And, you know, after five years of active duty and then 10 years working side by side with them in the same, same exact unit, you know, 15 years later, um, we're we're all laid off and I'm looking at job opportunities just disappear. This is back in 2011. And, um, you know, I wind up selling my house down there in uh, near Emerald Isle and um, heading back to the farm out of pure necessity because I couldn't find work. Um, basically, I was just living in my grandmother's old house that was sitting vacant and uh you know my girlfriend at the time she went crazy wanting to buy chickens for the backyard you know and by that time by the time i got home the farm is in a status of what i refer to as on life support and that is pretty much the last phase before it disappears forever from the family um it is in a state of lease where it's leased out to the big farmer in the area. Um, the last generation is holding on to the land for dear life. Uh, the sad part about land leasing and it being on what I call life support is that the lease payments typically only are enough to cover the tax payment due on land during the year. Uh, so there's there is zero profit made there whatsoever. In fact, if you really get down to it into a business sense, you're losing money um, hand over fist once it gets to this stage. But typically this is where the vultures start to circle around the farm. And I show back up, there was only about 40 acres remaining uh, for, for me to work with. All the rest of the thousand acres was out in the lease. My, fo my folks had sold off about 200 acres to try to cover a farm credit loan that had come due. And some of the banks, I won't get into, you know, who they are or whatever they are, but some of the banks, no matter what or how little of a loan that you're trying to take for a farming operation, you have to put up the entire farm, regardless of 
what the value of that operation may be. So, you know, say for instance, I'm on a $3 million value uh, piece of property. I need a $40,000 loan um, just to continue operations. I still have to put up the, the millions of dollars in, in land as collateral for that loan. So if I default on that loan, they're not coming to take $40,000 worth. They're coming to take the whole farm. Um, that has happened tremendously throughout the U.S. over the years, you know, because what what other what other option does the farmer really have? You know, it's not like he's going to go to the next bank down the road and they're going to tell him something different. You know, they've they've got you by the balls. Um, so a lot of those farms have turned over due to that. My folks wound up selling off 200 acres instead of losing half the farm or the entire farm or whatever the deal was. Um, in order to keep the 800 acres. Um, so I was very resistant to farming when I got back. And, you know, my girlfriend was just going crazy with the idea of farming. And, you know, to me, that was my transition out of the military because I'd been with jarheads for the last 15 years, day in and day out. And I started experiencing the transition struggle that so many have to have to go through you know and it's 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 not it's not localized to just the the o3 ground pounders you guys it, it's it's a lot of different mos's that have to go through this in my opinion because you know if you've been in for a significant amount of time you don't know shit when you get out you don't know shit about paying bills. You don't know shit about finding jobs. You don't know, you definitely don't know shit about how VA is going to treat you. And, you know, all of a sudden your entire support network is removed. And I think at the basic foundation of humans, what we're always after is a sense of connection to another human being or a group of human beings, which is why you see clicks emerge, which is why groups happen and stuff like that so you know we're we're there with our guys day in and day out and then one day it's all gone it just disappears out of nowhere um and i'm you know i'm i'm probably about nine months which statistically speaking nine months is the magic number for you know post-service transitional suicide statistics i think um when I'm figuring out that the world sucks and why the hell am I even here? You know, uh, I'm not talking to any of my guys that I was in with or any stuff like that. I'm not seeing anybody that's veteran around me or anything. I got nobody relating to any of this shit that I'm going through, you know, and looking at my high school people that I was in high school with that are out there either smoking meth or killing it in life or whatever they're doing and i'm just sort of like yeah i'm right back where i started this sucks so you know um it got to a point with me where something had to change i had i had finally gotten into nc state and i went the first semester during this time and flunked out miserably um in their mechanical engineering program um and basically NC State told me to kick rocks and go somewhere else. Um, they've changed a lot of that now to where they take a more compassionate approach to people that are struggling. But 
you know, I, I'm, I'm flunking out of college. I can't find a job other than working for my buddy's auto shop, changing oil and getting yelled at on how I put a serpentine belt on an engine and stuff. And, you know, now he and I are going to get into it and stuff like that. So you got all these compounding factors that are, that are happening to me at the same time. And I'm like, fuck it. Maybe I should just suck, start a shotgun. And out of nowhere, my girlfriend's set of chickens, one of them was this white chicken named Adel. Um, and that, that chicken would not leave me alone, dude. It was like, you know, I just kept jumping up in my lap all the time. Anytime I'd walk out eating a sandwich, if you look at some of the Facebook stuff, you know, you'll see a picture of it back in the day. But this chicken just would not leave me alone. And it was almost like God, God himself was sitting there in my lap saying, hey, stupid, start farming. Um, so basically, I took, I took the 40 acres that was remaining, you know, couldn't be used really for commodity crop production. And I didn't have anything at the time. You know, I was dead broke. Um, I had a motorcycle. I sold that off and built a website with it. And I uh, bought feed and birds for the set, first set of pasture chickens um, that I'd gotten interested in. I really liked working with the birds. And, uh, you know, I started plugging in basic business principles into everything I was doing because I knew how hard farming was, right? And I, I was like, you know, I watched my folks so many times get a check from something somewhere stuff it in their pocket go to town and buy all this dumb shit and then come back home and now the money's blown it's gone you know or they go buy a new truck or they go buy this new piece of equipment or whatever and we're right back where we started we're broke again so me looking at it from the aspect of okay something's got to change i'm not going to be in commodity crop or commercial livestock production i'm not doing that um i'm going direct to consumer so I'm going to do eggs. I'm going to do chicken. And I got into pigs in the first year, uh, working with pasture raising pigs and stuff like that. At the end of the year, I go back and I look at all of my numbers and I'm like, I'm losing money here. I'm losing money here. But pork seemed to have this profit margin in it that I could work with. And this is, this is very much geographically dependent. Um, you know, some places are going to prefer beef over pork or chicken or whatever. But, you know, it's all about working on your market and what you've got to to work with so i'm looking at pork as a viable income producer um and what any business person would do at that point is you know well if that's the thing that's making money that's what we need to focus on so i trimmed the fat off of the entire farm anything that was going out in time in terms of money that was not making anything for the farm or to build the operation was out the window um, unless it had a value that led towards the pork, you know, for a customer to buy it. Um, and then I went absolute crazy with, with the, uh, with pork production. And over time I started delivering and working my way into big corporate office buildings and stuff with sales sheets and stuff like that. And, uh, roughly in about two years, I went from, pretty much a bum straight out of the core to um, bringing in somewhere around 60,000 net. Um, anytime I hear somebody in ag talking about, yeah, this farm is bringing in 3 million a year. I'm like, yeah, is that net or gross? Because if it's gross, you ain't telling me shit. 
you know, uh, one of the jokes we've got in agriculture is how do you make a million dollars farming? And the, the answer is to start with two million. So, you know, fastest way to make money in ag is to sell the farm. It's, they're jokes, but they're kind of true. But anyway, um, so basically I start killing it with pork, uh, getting really creative with marketing and getting out of the box in terms of how farm products are delivered to the customer. Um, we, our hogs in the Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill area were one of the more sought after hogs because of the niche production we did um, that were specific towards people that, like if they hired a chef for a wedding, um, that chef wanted our hogs because they were higher quality and they were very different raised than any other pork you could buy in the area. So we're taking, we're taking pigs and we're selling a pig for somewhere around, you know, 800 to 900 all, all the way up to 1500 bucks for one hog uh, for these special events and stuff like that. And when I, once I started getting my head wrapped around, how do you, how do you move pork and how do you move farm products? Then, you know, the sky was pretty much the limit from there. Um, during this time, I had been working on kind of getting some grants for the farm, little small grants. There's there's less than $10,000 grants out there for farmers. The business plan that I kind of had in place was, you know, the farm production operation supports farm production only. Um, and we're not using that to move into new sectors. We use grant money, grant funds, and any other kind of personal investment that I can get from people that wanted to support what I was doing to grow the farm and grow the operation and get into new things. So um, I did get a grant from uh, Rural Advancement Foundation International, who's a great organization. They are typically the last ones that are called to a farm that's lost a contract and about to go belly up and lose everything. And they sit down with the farmer and they figure out how do we get out of this hole? And sometimes that means you're getting out of farming and you're going to go get a job in the city, you know? Um, but if you want to keep the farm and keep it in the family, this is how we got to do it. So they're the ones that, that help with that, but they were administering some grant funds coming from the state and the fed down to farmer at local levels. And I got this grant to um, buy chicken pot processing equipment. Um, so that we could process birds right there on the farm and I could cut out processing costs. So um, after I got the grant and I started working with them and you know they were they were really knowledgeable people, awesome folks. I um I, I was asked to come talk about how I built the farm and what I was doing and how it was working in North Carolina uh to folks that were interested in veterans getting veterans into agricultural industry and getting them into ag industry jobs and stuff like that what it can do for va blah 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 so i show up and this is the first time i ever spoke publicly um and i i wrote out this this speech talking about outlining how i could see it working you know the some of the things that they were working on um getting more vets into ag and um, at the end of it, you know, I kind of gave them my story like I'm giving y'all. Um, all of these people, they're, they're from Farm Credit, Farm Bureau, VA, RAFI, 
uh, farmer veteran coalition had showed up on the block during this time and, you know, some other stuff, a bunch of other people in there too, that, that were rather movers and shakers in the ag industry world, as well as, as well as the veteran world. But, you know, they're like giving me this ovation when I get done giving up and I didn't really know what to do with that, but they all wanted copies of the speech. So I sent it to them. And, you know, it was outlining basically none of these people in there were veterans, so they didn't really freaking get it. And the way I explained it to them was like, you know, hey, you guys are all on a plane with me and we're going to wherever the hell in the world and the plane crashes on a deserted island. You're out there on this deserted island having to depend on the people to your left and right, you know, for three or four years to survive whether that's mentally, physically, whatever. Um, but at a base psychological level, that's essentially what you're doing in the military. Um, you know, because we don't go looking for somebody from outside the military to help us with some stupid ass problem. We're going to take it to our guys first, right? Um, or, you know, of course, we're going to get ridiculed for it, but then they're going to help us. But anyway explaining it to them like that like they're a shipwreck survivor and then one day a helicopter shows up takes you all home and dumps you back into the civilian world you know i think it's kind of set off a light bulb for a lot of them of, of what that actually looks like to go in the military and come out and that speech got passed around and more and more people were talking to me about stuff and it, it wound up leading the people um from media showing up at my door to talk about you know, ag as a solution to PTSD and ag as a solution to therapeutic benefits uh, in the veteran community. And from there, those stories led to veterans calling me and ringing my phone off the hook or um, sending emails or, you know, hollering at us on Facebook on the farm page, like, dude, I love what you're doing. How do I get into it? And I was like, shit, man, I don't know. Come to the farm. I'll show you, you know, um, I'll be glad to help you get into whatever you want to get into. But, you know, over time, I started realizing that the vets that were finding this, this vocation, this new kind of vocation, <sighs> interesting to them, what they ultimately needed was the same shit that I got growing up on a farm. They need the farm kid knowledge, you know? They need to know what's what, they need to know how to do it, and then they need to know how to make it lucrative. Um, so it started out literally just me taking guys out at the farm. They'd hang out for a few days. I'd show them what I was doing, how I was doing it, you know, and it started to build this little network in North Carolina of guys. Um, and then I started getting calls from vets that had farms, and they're like, you know, I don't. I don't know how to make money with this thing is, you know, is this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, can you come out and let's talk about it. And basically what it led to was reconnecting vets to other vets that were doing agricultural work or wanted to get into it. Now, you know, there's an, this entire network in North Carolina of about 600 strong that are working with each other, um, exchanging knowledge, ex exchanging resources, um, I started snatching up equipment wherever I could find it, farm equipment, because like veterans, when they buy a farm, they're financially tapped. They don't have, 
they don't have the means to go out and buy, you know, a $50,000 tractor now that they've bought the farm, or they don't have the means to go rent a dozer for two months to clear up a section and turn it into a pasture for what they need to go to the next level or some of the equipment for production that's needed. So I start snatching up equipment and I form this 501 uh, nonprofit. I, I just started seeing that there was a need that was not being filled in North Carolina. And I had to finally make the decision, am I going to continue to farm or am I going to go down the veteran and agriculture route? And ultimately, you know, that same sense of connection, that same lack of attachment that we all feel when we get out of the military, get out of the Marine Corps, whatever, um, you know, that, that shit was eradicated when I started working around other vets and getting back in that scene and trying to help them develop their own farms and give them some of the knowledge that I had learned through the hard knock days and all that. Um, and it, it just felt more like home to me to start working with them, you know, let them farm if they want to farm, but let me be a part of that and show them how. And one of the biggest problems I see in ag today is the lack of networking. Like nobody wants to work with each other. And that's what's the biggest downfall of agriculture today was the day that we said we're not going to work with each other anymore we're not going to help each other get the damn crops out of the field when it comes time or we're not going to help each other work cows or build the barn or any of that kind of stuff there's no sense of belonging to a community whatsoever anymore it's only me me my farm you know so um i've been pushing the veterans i work with for a long time to continue to build on the network and continue to start working and you know now it's at a point it's grown so much that they're starting to come up with their own initiatives and i'm just trying to help connect the dots with resources i've got through state feds whatever to build that bigger and better um i was i was able to build the first and still only running um permanent agriculture program on a military installation that wasn't like workshop level uh called soldier to agriculture program on fort bragg and we're in class 32 right now um and this has generated you know probably about three four hundred veterans that are now going into agriculture across the u.s and a lot of the same things that i'm hitting at a thirty thousand foot view with you guys they get at the ten thousand foot view and we talk about how to mitigate a lot of these problems that they're going to encounter and that's a lot of what i what i focus on with them as well as these are the things that y'all need to consider because most of the vets that i've ever come in contact with that get into agriculture they get blinders on from some shit they've seen on social media or something on tv where they're like i want to work with cows chickens and pigs and you know they don't consider the horticulture they don't consider the soil sample analysis fields, they don't consider doing something in forestry or fisheries or, you know, growing mushrooms or whatever. So there's, there's all of these missed opportunities that are way more lucrative than trying to start a livestock operation from the ground up that a lot of people get in and figure out is way too hard to get out in the first five years. Real statistic, you can look that up. Um, but they, you know, it's, it's my job to start connecting the dots and connect military to the agricultural industries. And, you know, we're getting ready to turn key on this six month program, 
just north of Fort Bragg that's going to allow vets and active duty military and skill bridge programs to come out to the farm intern and experience all of the different facets of agriculture that they may be interested in. So whether they want to work in beef cattle production, there's cows on the farm. If they want to work in poultry, there's chickens on the farm. If they want to, you know, but expose them and mandate, well, not mandate, I hate that word, um, but instruct them and all of the other stuff that's out there like fruit, fruit tree production and blueberry production, uh, ornamental landscape horticulture models of plant propagation. Um, but at a base level, it's all about getting them out there and getting their hands dirty. And I think probably the biggest feedback piece I've gotten from any of my, my former students has not been that I've taught them ag, but that I've taught them that they can do it. That this industry is not as big and scary as a lot of people think it is. You can do it, you can make money at it, but you've got to go about it a certain way because if you come in like every other Tom, Dick and Harry, you're going to lose your ass in the first five years. And that's not what we want to see happen with the veteran community, you know? And now there's tremendous amounts of federal money coming down the pipes to train veterans how to become a farmer. And you've got so many of these subsidiary programs from farm people or farm advocates that don't know dick about what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, it's, it's also my job to try to clear up some of those problems that are existing in that realm and be like, nah, dude, this is the real deal. And this is what you need to understand. Farming is not sexy. It's not fun. It's going to be a pain in the ass. It's going to suck some days, but it's very rewarding to see your work pay off in the long run. And here are the steps we need to do to get there. Not just this, oh yeah, jump in farming. It's all butterflies and shit over here. You know, we don't, we don't play that with them. We give them the real deal. We, from day one, you ask any of my former students from day one, I am smashing hopes and dreams. And I don't care if I'm doing it or not because they, they need to be smashed. They need to, they need to realize, hey, this, this idea that you have is one that's been done a million times before and every single time it's failed. So let's not do that this time. Let's look at something else. You know, let's go explore a new interest that you may have and go from there. And what it's led to is this group of stupid tight-knit vets in North Carolina that's become, people are telling me it's becoming the model for the nation, which I'll believe that when I see it. But they're saying that North Carolina has done a better job of putting together a network of veterans than anywhere else in the U.S. And I, I do believe that one, but it being the model, we'll see, you know. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for a minute. And, you know, that's kind of my story in a 30,000 foot view. But it's all about, for me, it's all about working, reintegrating, reconnecting to the community through, you know, viable career opportunities. Um, whether that is working for an industry or not, or starting your own farm or not, but just to get the human connection back so that we don't have another, you know, another brother or sister that's going to smoke themselves tonight, you know, is, is one of the bigger reasons why I do this. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to think that of the Marines that I have served with, you know, I'm, I think I'm up to seven suicides now. And it's just insane to me for even thinking that now. Um, I don't, it, it, when, when we know what 
the answer is, is reintegration, it's economic sustainability, and it's, you know, personal sustainability, it's, it's, you know, mental sustainability for the veteran community. Um, I think that's probably the biggest three pieces to the suicide puzzle that's out there. But, you know, I know you you guys do a lot of work in this space, so I'm kind of curious to hear about all y'all are doing. I appreciate that, Robert. That was freaking sad, beautiful, and uplifting. I was going to ask you, man, if you think there's going to be, I mean, do you think there's hope? I mean, in, in order to get, I know 2050 looks is a faraway place. Everything changes so rapidly. Um, but can the idea of a citizen warrior farmer uh, still permeate and come to fruition where that's not going to be an issue? I mean, I know it's a national security issue. I think, see, it's, it goes back to such weird times we're living in, man. I mean, we watched agriculture's house of cards fall in a matter of freaking weeks when COVID hit the lockdown started last year you know I mean meat shelves were bare processing facilities were shut down and it's because we put such a huge dependence on H2A labor um you know is there any way we can pause this I really need to take a break for about 10 seconds and then i'll jump back into this you're, you're good bro you're good you're good cool cool i'll be right back that's some heavy shit man yeah Jesus, dude. yeah uh <laughs> Um, remember, um, I was going to tell you, Frank Felsberg, uh, remember uh, the Colonel, uh, the damn, what's his name? The guy who wrote that book, The Four Pillars of Leadership. Yeah. He wants us to do another interview, but with another uh, guy, an army guy who just with finished, with, with who finished writing a book. With just the army guy or both of them? Yeah, just the army guy. Oh, okay. He's a veteran attorney somewhere in Texas. Veteran attorney? Wrote... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer him. I was hoping to get a... There's a lady that does work with veterans. I think she's a clinical psychologist. Uh, her name's Juniper. Uh, Mark Mosier knows her. I think mm -hmm. she worked for a program called uh, uh, Horses hero to horses or horses to heroes program dude it's a hardcore program for like operators oh it's like equine it's equine therapy yeah, yeah 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 equine therapy yeah yeah mark mark did that shit and, he uh, did he went through the the yeah, therapy yeah, oh damn. yeah yeah he said it was the shit dude um like hardcore shit but he i mean he's built for that kind of shit man right dude no horses are amazing I told you about, I had a few horses next door to me and they're just, they're weird to be around. They're such like, ma like beautiful, massive animals. And I can see yeah. how that would be, how that would uh, be beneficial. The, uh, the, not the nonprofit that I work for, uh, we have a program in Pender County called, um, 
uh, I told me, wow, brain farts, dude, I've been having a lot of brain farts. <laughs> anyway, um, Mary, she does uh, like therapies and she has a, a horse sanctuary. She has an animal sanctuary, dude. Mm. but she brings horses and ponies and Mustangs to the, um, to the schools. And the students oh, yeah. learn about them. They get to, you know, be around them. They, they learn all this cool stuff. I got so much pictures of that stuff. And I'm, I'm so very glad that we're able to do that, provide that for these children, even though. Yeah, for sure. It's badass, dude. Yeah. Get them around them kids. Yeah, dude, that's what we need. This past week, man, we've been, it's tough, dude. Some days I, I feel like there's hope for these kids. Some days I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how we're going to bounce yeah. back. So, oh, thank you for I'm interested. I was kind of listening a little bit. Oh, Do what? Go ahead, Robert. Go ahead. You were frozen there for a minute. Oh, sorry. I was, um, I was kind of listening in the background, but yeah. So, horse programs have been popping up everywhere. Um, equine therapy and stuff like that. And I think there's there's a couple of barriers to success of horse therapy programs. You know, like uh, USDA does not even consider a horse uh, thing more of a luxury thing. Like if you were to try to claim horse or any kind of equine stuff as a farm product or service, it, the IRS will kick it back. Um, because it's they don't consider horses to be anything agricultural. Uh, it's more of a more of a hobby luxury thing. So I know a lot of these programs that are out there for horses, and I'm not trashing them by the least. There's total total um, a lot of good stuff in those programs to help people. Um, but it's sort of like you know a lot of these programs you go out there and you can put your hands on the horse, you can kind of lay on the horse, but you can't actually get on them, ride them, and stuff like that. Um, I think there's some of the bigger barriers. And there's so many people that are interested in starting horse programs and equine programs for, for veterans and for PTSD therapy that the, one of the bigger reasons is that they're, they're having a hard time making it work financially as a, as a farming endeavor. Um, horse folks are a different breed of people but they're, you know, really good people in that industry. And some of the, some of the foremost equine specialists in the world will tell you that they don't even own a horse because it's, it's such a money pit to throw money into. Um, but, you know, I think, I think if we can ever figure out that paradigm and whatever that program is that you saw that was really working well uh, for, for whomever you were talking about, I'd love to hear about it. Um, I think Lone, Lone Survivor Foundation was doing some stuff um, with, with horse with the client therapy um that was looking like it was doing some promising work there but um but anyway um i think we were talking about you know watching how how rough stuff got kind of through the the pandemic and the lockdowns and i mean are, are y'all aware of what actually happened during the time that led to the meat shortages and all that stuff i mean did did y'all happen to catch any of why that happened i thought i like last year i i know there was a big i think like flooding issues that 
with a port port was that that's the story that i heard as far as the pork around here i think it was maybe down in georgia or south carolina there was a lot of like flooding and they lost a ton of a ton of their animals that's that's one thing that happens rather often you know you get a hurricane that comes in uh the hog houses don't have much of a much of a solution most of them are in low-lying areas anyway like in duplin county hogs outnumber people to 60 to 1 um down there and that's where you see the pigs on top of the hog houses in a flood and stuff like when a hurricane comes in but what really happened that led to um the meat shelves going bare during the lockdown and pandemic and we're still seeing fallout from it today and and so many other arenas of industries is essentially we rely on the migrant worker community so big in agriculture today because at a base level going back through history cheap labor is what makes the world go round um ag is no stranger to labor problems in fact that's the biggest problem it's got is labor so so much of these these industries within agriculture are heavily dependent on h2a workers now when h2as and h2bs get to the u.s you know most of them are in communal housing and all of them are coming to the u.s to send money back to Mexico or wherever they're coming from uh, to support their families. So most of them wind up living in this big communal housing or ridiculous numbers of people in one house at a time, uh, whatever. So they also are all working separate jobs that are living in the same house. So you've got the ladies that are working in a processing facility for chicken or pork or beef or whatever uh, or they're cleaning houses or working in healthcare or whatever they're doing um, you've got the men that are going out to the fields or going into the same jobs processing facilities and stuff like that so what what happens is is they're not just working one job they're typically moonlighting elsewhere too so they get done with first shift at the Mount Air chicken plant and they come home and then turn around and go to third shift at a different plant and then wash, rinse, repeat on a daily basis. So when COVID started spreading, um, not only did it run rampant in the migrant worker community, but it spread like wildfire through their entire community as well because they're all living together and they're all going to all these various jobs. So you had all of these processing facilities shut down at one time. And that led to the shortage of meat, the burp and blip in the system that we saw. That's coincidentally led to a backup of animals for slaughter that is now causing all of the prices to rise exponentially on meat products and agriculturally related products across the board. And now it's seeped into other industries as well, like fertilizer and stuff like that, those kinds of industries. I mean, everything is so tightly connected that, and it was built that way under go big or get out, that you can't have one thing happen and what it's the butterfly effect on on crack um 
you know, one thing happened in one industry is going to translate over into other agricultural industries today. So looking at that from an agricultural economic standpoint, um, we're only going to see it get worse and worse and worse as time goes on because we built it on such fragile infrastructural legs to where if anything goes wrong with any part of the system that is very fragile to begin with, H2A workers, or you know, one farmer controlling ridiculous amounts of acreage because in order for them to make it work, they have to get very small profit margins off of one acre. So they've got to have thousands of acres to make it work. Um, because we built it this way, any burp or blip in the system just causes all kinds of chaos across the board. So it drives more and more people towards the small farm world. But, you know, that's, that's what everybody talks about being so cool about it. But the part that's not cool about it is once the system catches back up and Walmart's got beef back in stock, those people that went to the small farms are now going back to Walmart. So your small farmers are still sitting there stuck holding the bag. And a lot of that is based off of one, one concept alone, and that's convenience. Because a small farmer, a small farmer is not Walmart. They're, they're not gonna have beef, chicken, pork, turkey, lamb, as well as all the vegetables you want, condiments and all the you know high fructose corn syrup bullshit um, that that is in 95% of of uh, of processed foods today. You know they don't have that. It's not a grocery store scenario. So it it really boils down to what they can and cannot do um, based off of the convenience factor of whether or not they can go to a grocery store and still get everything they want. I mean, we've essentially separated the consumer from the farmer since 1916 when Piggly Wiggly was invented. They were the first grocery store ever created, self-service grocery store. And they built it in Memphis, Tennessee. As you know, they're still going today. Piggly Wiggly's still a brand. And Piggly Wiggly has been doing um, they, they changed the dynamics of how food is, is worked in this country. It used to be markets and traded stuff from neighbor to neighbor, working within, you know, this protein source off of this farm and traded over for these vegetables or these canned goods off of that farm. But once we started the grocery store delivery of food, we were able to really ramp up on cities and you know high dense population areas without the need for a farmer in the area because we'll just truck all that shit in so again it's a great paradox because you've got to feed all the mouths and how do we do it so commercial ag is still very much needed and I, you know i don't get into the arguments about well, it's killing everybody or it's killing the environment or any of that stuff. Yeah, well, until people start realizing that they're going to have to pay more for food from small farmers and producers and they vote with their dollar, it's not going to change because commercial ag is going to continue to exist as long as people keep paying for it, you know? And if people don't care, then they're going to buy whatever's fastest, cheapest, and most convenient. And that's where small farm loses out hand, hand over fist every time because it can't maintain consistency, quality, and product availability at all times. So a network of small farms can, 
And that's essentially what I'm trying to help construct is, you know, where, where do we take small farms and turn them into commercial set of, of product availability for, for the masses? And it's, it's an extremely large undertaking. Um, probably one that will not ever be done in my lifetime, but, you know, if, if for instance, we do see the house of cards fall, um, the only ones that are going to be left with food, readily available to eat food, are going to be the small farmers, because where else are you going to get things processed? Um, where are you going to turn corn into corn syrup or turn soybeans into soy milk and so forth and so on? Where, where, do, where does all of that happen when we have set the stage to be so heavy corporate large-scale dependent? You know, um, essentially, essentially for this to continue, you're going to have to automate and get rid of the, weak, the weakest links, which is typically in your labor. Um, so, you know, the farms of tomorrow, if they're putting all the conspiracy theories aside, um, if, if we keep on cranking as a human race in the world and, you know, we're not all destroyed by killing ourselves um, in, the, in the decades to come, I think the farms you're going to see of tomorrow on commercial scale are going to be fully automated robotic, uh, especially once we solve the problem of data in rural areas, because so many rural areas do not have DSL capabilities. Some of them are still dealing with dial-up. So transmission of data that's needed to be able to talk to robots in a field or something to that effect is impossible right now. So once we solve the Wi-Fi problem on farms, we're gonna see an entirely new industry, um, attack of the clones, if you will, on farms where everything becomes automated. I mean, we've got technology now to where the tractors can drive themselves and the farmer can sit on his, sit in his recliner and watch what's going on. But we don't have the bandwidth of Wi-Fi signal in order to transmit those data needed to keep the tractor on course, if you will. So that's, that's where 5G be, comes in. Yeah, well, yeah, it's where 5G comes in or Elon <laughs> Musk Starlink or whatever, you know, it, it, it all depends. And like, I did go back to NC State and finish my degree and wound up getting two in ag, ag technology because I'm kind of an engineering nerd. But, um, you know, pretty much all we're waiting on is a Wi-Fi signal. And then you're going to see all kinds of new industries pop unless... Unless, you know, the world turns into becoming a much darker place than the house of cards falls. And then, you know, he who has the food is going to be the one that, that rules the world, in my opinion. And you, you guys have seen the, the worst areas of the world and you've seen how, how food and food security controls a population big time. You know, I, I know you guys have seen that kind of shit. So when when we're talking about it here in the US with so many people that are ignorant of that kind of model of psychological warfare and control, um, people have got a wake up coming if if they think that, you know, we're just going to continue into this cornucopia and oasis of having, 
bright red tomatoes year round in a grocery store 24 seven, unless, you know, we're able to hold on to what we've got that's, that we've built so far. It's, it's gonna be really interesting to see how shit shakes up over the next 10, 15 years, in my opinion. Yeah, I got, a, I got a question for you, man. How do you, so I'm thinking that like the meat industry is essentially gonna become like the 3D printing um, commercial aspects uh, that are now going to revolutionize the way we conduct business in terms of small arms manufacturing. Um, so around, um, what is it, DEFCAD that produces the 3D prints for all the weapon systems so you can get a 3D printed model uh, for a M203, uh, a 50 cal, like everything. And then a couple of years ago, Dr. Kilcullen was talking about how they're only a few years away from the energetics uh, portion of that, meaning that 3D printing machines are going to be able to produce the ammunition for these types of weapon systems, making essentially weapon systems company obsolete and or the track. Yeah. How about how about artificially grown meats becoming almost like a part of the 3D manufacturing? I mean, or oh, shit, that's already happened. I mean, you know, talking about talking about the um, plant based meat and lab grown meat. You know, we've and, and here we're going to get into a little bit of conspiracy theory and a little bit of Robert Elliott's opinion. Um, so I've got to preface this one. My question is we've been doing agricultural production since when in terms of human history? How long have we been doing food production for ourselves? A long, long freaking time. Everything that led to setting the stage for us here in the US with the way things are today began when government started to get its power and USDA was created. In fact, um, let me give you an example uh, of how, how young this house of cards is when we came back from world war ii we had so many nitrogen bombs that were left over and the big question was what do we do with all this damn nitrogen so scientists got this brilliant idea that hey plants we think plants use nitrogen. Why don't we start putting nitrogen on the fields and we'll take it from these bombs that are left over. And now you have fertilizer industry and that's where it started was a result of those nitrogen bombs coming back. Um, the veteran disconnect from agricultural areas of the world occurred in World War II with the creation of the GI Bill. There's data to show that that's where we started seeing veterans not return back home to farms because once we released the gi bill you know farm farm parents were telling their kids coming back from world war ii go get a college degree this shit sucks out here you don't want to be in this not anymore go get a college degree and start doing that and that's you know all we're seeing if you look back from the from the dawn of time where were most of the wars who who fought those wars they were farmers 
literally. I mean, the connection between the veteran community and the agricultural community are so close that, you know, vets don't even know it, but they're already apt to farm. And now we're starting to see this exodus back into agriculturally related careers and, you know, small farm jobs and stuff like that from the veteran community because they're sort of like, wait, that really looks appealing to me. It really looks appealing to me. So, you know, my question is, we were producing all of this stuff for so long, so damn long. And all of a sudden we, we got into what, what uh, Joel Saladin, he's, he's a really, really um, prolific speaker on regenerative agriculture and, you know, working with nature instead of trying to make nature work for us um, like we do with, with ag. And he says it best when it comes to um, what we're doing. We're, we're so caught up in the how to get food produced that we don't even bother to ask the question, should we be doing it this way? You know, we want to science it to death. And the reason we science it to death is because it feeds the fertilizer industry, it feeds the middleman, it feeds, feeds the salesman, it feeds everybody else except the one damn one that matters, and that's the farmer, because at the end of the day, he's the one being left with holding the bag of the price that he's given, not the price it should be. So we have villainized cattle politically. We are trying to regulate cow farts out of existence, literally, is what they're trying to do, what the politicians are trying to do as part of the Green New Deal and all of that other, this, this that, and the other bullshit. But if you go and you look at just a Google satellite image view of the world and the US, the US is, you know, or anywhere else in the world today versus 40 years ago, you're going to notice a lot more desert areas in the world today than we had before, which is causing what is the real um, climate change in the world because we can't sequester freaking carbon from the damn atmosphere when you have no soil that's actually active and working if it turns desert. So how did, how did we have such lush green pastures around the world or lush green um, places and soil that had active microbes and mycorrhizal fungi and, you know, constant transfer of, you know, um, CO2 back into O2 out of, in and out of plants and all of that good stuff. We did it by grazing. Nature did it itself. If we go back to before machinery turned into a thing in the U.S. and we look at how the Midwest was such a fertile ground and soil. And, and I mean, everything, us as a human race owes our entire existence to six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains, period. I mean, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the shit we build houses from, you know, shit we've extracted to make cars out of, it's all based on soil principle. And that's not my saying, that six inches of topsoil thing, that's, uh, I don't know who said it, but I'm not gonna take claim for it. But it is true that everything in and out of our daily existence is based off of the soil. And the minute that it becomes bare soil, 
because we've removed one aspect of that ecosystem out. It does not go back to where it needs to be in terms of having a cover crop applied to it where it can do all of those transfers of nitrogen and action in the soil in order for us to continue to sequester carbon and turn it back into O2 and reduce the global heating that's happening. And because we've got such desertification across the US and the world is why we're seeing hurricanes that are ridiculous. We're, you know, because there it lies into the hydrologic cycle that happens where water evaporates, goes out to sea, comes back, whatever. You know, over and over and over again, we're, we are going the ass opposite direction of where we should be going with trying to regulate the fart coming out of the south end of a northbound cow. Um, cattle and livestock doing proper grazing techniques will build topsoil back to where it needs to be and will stop desertification from occurring with our soils on this planet and will essentially lower the average temperature that's rising every year just by the interaction of cattle. But we want to regulate a cow fart and push you know, lab-grown beef into the population. And my question is why? Why are we doing that? Because we villainized the dairy industry and we've killed it. We cut it off at the knees over the past 20 years. I mean, it used to be dairies every damn where and you can't find them now because we started pushing this near milk shit like soy milk, almond milk and all these nut milks and all this stuff and saying cow milk's bad for you. You need to go find some other stuff. You know, um, we talk about going vegan. Well, what does that actually require when you get down to a microbial level in soil? If you're gonna go vegan, well, that requires you to constantly crank and produce vegetables to be used for vegan consumption. Well, what the hell is that doing to the soil? Because how many microbes, how many worms, and how many all the kinds of other shit are you killing in the process to produce the food so somebody doesn't have to go murder a cow and eat beef? It doesn't make sense. And, and people have gotten way too disconnected from what food actually is. I mean, I think our, the last I checked, I don't know what the true data are today, but only 1.8% of the population is a farmer. And I mean, Jose, I know you know a handful of farmers or more in your area. Um, Tyler, I don't know how many you know, but if you go ask the general population out there today, any single freaking one of them, I guarantee you, none of them are gonna come back and be like, oh yeah, I know three farmers. They don't know shit. They don't know shit. I mean, we've gotten to a point in human existence where, where the people that are making the decisions, the bureaucrats that are being guided by the lobbyists, that are being guided by industry dollars, that are being guided by where the consumer actually spends their damn dollars, is saying, this is good for me and my family, this lab-grown beef, because I want to lead a vegan lifestyle, but I want to murder the fucking environment in the process because I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. That is where we've arrived at. Yeah, and that's that's really that's really sad. I think this man-made meat stuff is, you know, it's kind of like back in the '80s when there was a big, there was this attack on fat, right? How they're telling you, like, real fat is bad for you, which you know, come to find out, that's the farthest thing from the truth. We need fat. Our brains need fat. 
right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the big thing with me, and I don't care what anybody's personal preference is or what they think they want to do for, to make the right health decisions, but you're not going to tell me that red meat is carcinogenic and is going to kill me and then, no. and then go eat a, a man-made burger that looks just like a burger and it's pumped full of shit that you can't even pronounce. Right. You're, you're not going to tell me that. that's not an argument that I'm willing to have with anyone. I, I, I do think, you know, people's bodies can function off a vegan or vegetarian diet, maybe, you know, suboptimally, optimally, but if, if you feel fine and you do it, I probably couldn't do that. I probably need a different set of nutrients than you depending on my activity levels and whatever else, like, you know, to each their own, I don't mind that, but you're not going to sit here and say what you're doing is not healthy. Right. Um, right. And I'll I'll even I'll even give you data to support what you're saying on that one. When when I began farming as a small farmer, you know, I started going down this road of I'm only going to eat what I produce. Um, the only the only thing I would eat that was not from something I produced, and this was not like a, a militant view that this is how it's going to be every single fork of food that I put in my mouth is going to be something that I produce myself. No, I'm just saying as a guideline, you know, it's like most of what I eat is going to be shit I produce uh, from vegetables to pork to beef to chicken to whatever it is. Right. And it was just, it was just for me to see the different, like I, I was more interested in the quality than I was anything else, you know, sort of like, damn, this is really good so much better when i when i feed the pigs peanuts god the fat comes out so much different it tastes delicious you know stuff like that so you know we're on this kick of eating our own food and it, you know it tastes much better the only thing i'm not eating that's coming straight from the grocery store is shipments and you know i would not put ice cream down was the one thing i would not do is put ice cream down so i'm, I'm still buying ice cream and eating it every night right I'm a fat kid at heart but um after about a year and a half or so you know my doctor at VA was like I really want we, we need to get your labs so that you know they do the fasting labs and my cholesterol is through the roof I had hypertension blood pressure issues and all kinds of fucked up shit before but when I got my labs back my doctor was like what are you doing what are you talking about what am i doing and you know she said something to the effect of your labs are dead perfect i don't i don't understand this we want to run them again based off of you know your your previous labs you had before and i'm like okay and i thought it was just a mistake i wasn't paying any attention to it whatsoever and they came back again and they were absolutely perfect again and you know um it occurred to me after talking to the doctor the second time about this and as i was walking out the door she said whatever you're doing keep it up and i'm on the way home and i'm like i'm just eating shit that i produce that isn't pumped up with anything that isn't soaked in saline solution like chicken is you know if you buy chicken from a local farmer producer that they've raised themselves, you're going to notice need salt because your body's been trained to, to to have a salt content. Salt adds weight. Salt 
adds tenderness to the poultry. So typically chicken goes into a saline solution before it gets packaged to pump up the numbers. But, you know, just eating my own food was helping me to rectify my body back into where it needed to be with all of that shit. And it dawned on me on the way home. I'm like, well, hell, I'm just eating my own food. I'm not doing anything different. I'm just working on the farm and eating my own food. You know, and those stories are everywhere with people that have switched out of buying shit from the grocery stores. Because, you know, the, the way it's got to be to have consistent delivery of product to a grocery store is they have to be grown. Um, any, anything has to be grown to be a certain weight, a certain size, and a certain dimension and have that same look to it that it's taken out all of the good qualities of that food now. So, yeah, nutrient density pound per pound of what you're getting on a small farm versus a grocery store is pretty damn equal if you put it side by side on a comparison because you're not getting shit out of the grocery store and you're paying dirt cheap for it. Yeah. Understandably so. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to discount or discredit anybody's opinion. I, I don't I don't care to try to do that, but I just think it's more along the lines of what is going on in this country and world is the tribalism and the team shit. And you want to pick your side and fight to the death about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it it doesn't matter what you want to label yourself or or call yourself. The idea is what you're putting in your body should have the lowest, you know, ingredients content period. Right. You know, our bodies don't know what to do with, with processed things. They don't know how to do that. Um, that's why, like you were talking about, you know, uh, high fructose, high fructose is, is one of the biggest issues we have. America has anyway, but the world has our, our bodies don't know how to process that. If you want, if you like sweet shit, eat real sugar. Yeah. You know what, whatever, but yeah. So I don't know, but yeah, I I mean, brown sugar, you know, and and a lot of people don't know what you want to I love eating red meat. I love steak. So, you know, you're talking yeah, about me the meth- the methane issue with the, the cows fart. And it's like a lot of people don't know that the smallest little burp from one single volcano does more damage to our ozone than we ever oh my have God, yeah. so far in the existence of man. I'm not I'm not trying to say we're not destroying the planet. I think we are doing a pretty good job at that. But there's natural things that happen that cows farting for billions and billions of years we'll never be able to touch you know yeah i mean you know and if you go back and you look at it for pound for pound you know when we first came across the appalachian mountains as explorers and we looked down into the grasslands of the midwest we saw what was estimated to be nine million buffalo and that was just what they could see you know that had been naturally doing this shit from Rockies to Appalachian, back and forth, over and over, building this topsoil over time, rapidly, because they were doing an intensive grazing model, is what we call it today, but that was just what the buffalo did naturally, you know? They, they move, they eat, they eat it down, and their hooves break up the soil, and then they shit all over it, and then it builds topsoil quick over time. Um, you know, how many animals did we have on this planet before we turned into commercial producers of animals and started saying cow farts are bad? 
I mean, to me, to me, it's an insult on my, on my, you know, just my logic and reasoning brain that you're going to tell me as somebody with an agricultural background that a cow fart is what is killing the environment. Bullshit. If anything, you should be worshiping the cow fart coming out of that <laughs> south end of the northbound cow because cows are the only damn thing that are going to save the planet. If you really want to get down to a brass tax, you know, let, let's look at this shit. How do we fix soil? You can't produce something. You can't produce something artificially that is going to build topsoil like a ruminant can, like a goat, like a cow, like a, you know, a sheep, whatever you're doing, it is going to require you going back to marrying with nature. I don't know if that if y'all could hear that or not. Yeah, we still got you. My, okay, good. Yeah, you're gonna have to go back to marrying nature with with your production. And that's that was kind of that's kind of what I teach is how do you get along with nature instead of trying to force it to do your will, which is essentially what we do with ag production today on a on a commercial scale. You know, we look at we look at soil agriculturally we look at soil as a substrate instead of looking at soil as a living biological being that we're working with and it's starting to come back around to you know we have been forcing soil into submission for the past almost 100 years now we need to go back to working with it as an actual living biological being to make it work and stop disking into the earth and breaking up all of that biological action and exposing it to sunlight and exposing it to the air to where it's going to kill all the microbes and the beneficials and all that kind of shit going on underneath the surface. We've got to go back to that because if we don't, then we're just going to continue to release carbon into the atmosphere. And it's, it's ridiculous. You can, you can even look up um, when when they are tilling fields in the Midwest, um, you can look up satellite images of the carbon in the atmosphere, and you can see how much is being released when they're breaking up that soil crust to start working on the soil for the next planting of corn or beans or whatever they're going to plant next. And it's a ridiculous amount of carbon that's being released into the yeah. into the atmosphere whereas keeping keeping some form of of cover crop on it and working with it and trying to plant into that cover crop instead of trying to break it all up and make the soil do where we want it to go and shit and then fertilize the hell out of it with artificial chemicals and stuff like that you know we're, we're going back into a regenerative agriculture model of thought and science and going back to saying, you know, maybe, maybe we didn't have it wrong before we let the universities get their noses into all this stuff and figure out that we needed to science it, this shit. Maybe the guys that ran the cows in grasslands followed them with pigs and then followed them with chickens. Maybe they were onto something, you know? And it, it baffles me to think that we started out with this, let's force nature to do our will instead of saying, why have we been doing it this way for, for freaking millennia? 
um, can we can we take what we've learned over that time and start to try to marry it together? Or are we just going to be the the super duper smart nerds that we are and force nature into submission? And what do you see happening now? Nature is not in submission. She's starting to destroy us because, you know, we have we have turned everything into a freaking desert on this planet. And we see that in the United States. The southeast of the U.S. is about to become a major vegetable producer because commodity prices suck and because California can't produce the majority of the vegetables anymore because they're now a desert. They broke the soil crust and didn't put any of the good shit back into it. So we're about to see the southeast go through what California has done. And they want to blame it on rainfall and cow farts. But the truth is, is that, no, you have not given the soil what it needs to maintain everything above it i mean your hydrologic cycle is based off of what the soil is doing where water goes the amount of rainfall and all that shit it's all based off of soil and what the soil can take in what can't and you know one of the things in my classes that i teach my my students is as a farmer your primary goal above all else is to nourish the soil on your farm. If you do not do that, you are going to fail because you cannot make it work. No matter what it is you are trying to grow, it's got to be done by soil. Whether it's the feed for the cows, so you're not having to buy feed for cows, you're gonna try to produce it as grass, soil. If you're trying to produce vegetables, soil. If you're trying to produce crop, soil. You know, it's always the damn soil and the water. So if we need to nerd out about anything, it's about how do we produce the greatest soil that we ever could and then turn around and save the world. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of really neat ideas and concepts behind it right now that are leading us in directions we need to be. But, you know, until we quit, until we quit monetizing uh, everything and watching soil turn into sand, um, you know, we're, we're not going to get very far. So me as a farm owner and an operator, it's my, it's my job to do the best I can with the soil I'm given. And working with sand is really fun. I'm working with 50 acres just north of Fort Bragg. And, you know, we're, we're trying to get the soil healthy on it. And it's, it's a bit of a challenge. It's been sitting there for forever. So. Yeah, that's really cool. So so how do people, I mean, if anyone's interested in supporting you or, you know, possibly getting involved, how, where, where should they go to look into your, what you got going on the soldier to agriculture? Is that, that's on Bragg, you said, but. Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is um, typically email and I'll put it through the chat. Um, let's see. Yeah. I'm just going to put in my two emails uh i'll add those to the uh the digital flyers yeah or if they want to support my work monetarily just go to the website is the best thing to do okay. and i just included the link to that so yeah, that's awesome work you're doing. Very interesting stuff that I think, you know, 
go moving forward a lot more people need to be aware of these type of things going on just for our you know like jose always says you know agriculture and and farming is a national security uh threat oh, yeah. right now especially um and i think too many people like you're saying in the world just don't they just they're just oblivious to this whole concept and idea of where their food even comes from they're just grabbing that frozen burrito and you know it's all good so yeah yeah i mean everybody everybody buys food now and doesn't think twice about it where it comes from is it good for me any of that stuff i mean you know it, it was funny to me and early in my ag day in my small farming days when i was trying to like make it work at a farmer's market and stuff i would get people that would walk up in front of me and they would be slurping on a six dollar starbucks and have dunkin donuts in their hand but would scoff at the price of chicken that i had in the freezer and want to drill me about why why would i be trying to price gouge them and I'm like, you don't even understand how hypocritical you are with what you're eating and drinking right now. Yeah. In terms of price gouging, you know, what do you have a freaking clue what's in that donut, what's in that coffee, what's in, you know, any of the shit you're eating and not thinking about paying twice for, you're thinking twice about paying the price that they're telling you to pay for it. But me putting a face with a product here that you can, you can criticize. Yeah, you've got no problem doing that. But you don't have a freaking clue about how trained you are or how, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How indoctrinated you are into thinking that everything that you buy is good for you mm. and everything that you buy is wholesome and it was done with all the best stuff. I mean, shit, we can go look at it right now in any grocery store in the U.S. with, with chicken. And I, I always like to bag on chicken because chicken, the chicken industry is just, oh my God. But next time you buy any kind of chicken in a grocery store, look for the packaging that says no hormones on it. You know, yeah. uh, you'll see it everywhere. It says no hormones, no hormones added to this chicken. Well, here, here's the really screwed up part to that is that hormones in poultry have been outlawed since the fifties. So is it wholesome or is it marketing? It's marketing. That's all it is. It's, it's like saying, it's like me selling pork and saying my pigs don't smoke crack. Well, no shit, stupid. But <laughs> the average consumer doesn't get that, you know? So, you know, the average consumer doesn't understand that. They're just sort of like, oh, look, this doesn't have any hormones in it. This must be good for me. It's a false sense of security that they're selling me into buying that stupid ass product. And, you know, you go and you look at the chicken in the grocery store and you'll see four or five different brands. Well, guess what? They're all controlled by one single corporation. One. They're just giving you an illusion of choice and they're all raised the same way, you know? So. Yeah. I forget people, a, a few years back I watched, I think it was on Netflix. There was a documentary about chicken farming, you know, in the big companies or whatever. And it, it was honestly sad like yeah. these farmers, like, just like you were saying earlier about how they, you know, the, the, whichever company they're farming for, 
comes through every so so often and it's like oh you got to do these upgrades and it just constantly keeps them in this pit and like but they're like i don't have another choice though like at this point i already made this bed i have to lay in this bed and it's just i don't know you know that's there's a lot of disturbing stuff out there the the go big or get out plan that they've rolled have been and have been working towards for so long is going to be the downfall of American agriculture. It's in 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 the plan's greatest design and you know all of these brainiacs that that created it. The problem that they never saw coming was the harder you put your thumb on a farmer, the more that the next generation is going to say, "Screw this shit, I'm out." You know, I'm not going to let you control me like you did my dad for 40 years. I'm going to go find a different job. So now the problem is, and you see this if you pay attention to USDA stuff that's out there, is where is the next generation of farmers going to come from? Oh, shit. We haven't even gotten down that rabbit hole today. And that one's the scary one. That was a scary one because it, it China, you have to import the food if there are no farmers in the U.S. Either that or fully automate across the board. You can't do that. You cannot fully automate agricultural systems on a scale to support the population when you have to compete with Mother Nature that is unpredictable at best. I mean, anything in engineering when we talk about agricultural engineering or anything else, what, what the engineering solves is repetitive tasks. So if, if I am nailing a board every four inches all day, then there is a robotic that I can implement to do that task, but you cannot tell robotics to change the soil pH when the soil varies over every 10 feet or when you've got an acid rain pop up or when you've got a hurricane that comes in and wipes out and floods your shit. Robotics can't account for all that. You've still got to have some kind of human interaction to know what the hell's going on um, and direct what needs to happen from there. And that's the scary part is that we don't have anybody of the next generation saying, dad, I'm going to stick around and, and take over the family farm. They don't exist because mm-hmm. they're bailing and they should. So, you know, you, there, there's a reason why you don't ever hear about anybody cranking up a hundred acre farm and starting to farm a thousand acres or 5,000 acres, because you have to literally be born into it now. The startup costs of commodity agriculture are so exorbitant that you cannot afford to go out, get a loan, and start to become a commercial or commodity crop farmer. You can't. You have to be born into it now, period. So the only time you hear of somebody starting a farm is going to be a small farm. There's a very good reason for that. They can't afford to get into big farming. So what happens from there? I guess we'll find out. I don't know because it's, it, it's concerning to me, you know, in the literally in our lifetime, we've probably lost the population of farmers has probably gone from about 30% of the population down to 1.8% of the population, just mm-hmm. in our lifetimes alone. 
what happens in the next 20 years when that goes down to 0.5% of the population? You know, that's some concerning shit. And people need to be cognizant of that because that freaking Starbucks, you know, mocha frappuccino latte bullshit is going to go to freaking like 30 bucks. And that's not even accounting for inflation and all that other shit. So any other questions for me? I know I've probably drowned y'all like a fire hose by now. No, this no, is good. Not, um, my students wanna... always complain. <laughs> I could listen for, uh, to you for hours. Um, <laughs> and I have a mouth too. I, I talk. Um, that's like the number one complaint that I get now. Is that yeah. once you get me talking, I won't shut up. So, yeah. no, but uh, I would like to ask you, um, what do you do to keep that brain of yours sharp? What do you do to keep your body healthy? Um, and, you know, especially. Well, uh, probably, num- you know, the thing, I don't go to a gym yet. I really need to get my ass into a gym. Um, I do watch what I eat these days. Uh, I got off of every medication I was on at VA that helped a tremendous amount. Um, because VA is VA is part of the system that wants to regulate cow farts and say that cow farts are bad for us. Uh, and you know, um, even not seeing any combat in the Marine Corps, uh, the VA has tried to kill me twice now. So I've, you know, I've been in more danger at the VA, I feel like, than I ever was in the Marines. Um, but watching what I eat and trying to trying to keep moving, so much of my work is talking now. So I don't get a lot of physical action I need to keep going, if that makes But, yeah, just watching what I eat is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I feel that way, too. Um, I miss being a ground pounder. Um, now it's like uh, behind two computers and researching everything and under God's green earth, you know, and then trying to find solutions to really big macro problems. Yeah, I get that. And I think the only solution that we've got left is to network people together and get them back on the same page because the amount of division that is in ag that is from farmer to farmer that is from consumer to farmer that is you know it's it's really crazy to me to think about the amount of people versus in the world um that you know as a general rule we all know there's that guy in the veteran community but as a, as a general rule, you know, vets are very adept to wanting to work with each other and continue the networking cycle along in their own industries. And, and ag is the only thing that really ties them together on a level that nowhere else really can. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got veteran entrepreneurial groups that are think tanks and shit like that. Bunker Labs has built that and gone crazy with, with it, I know. But, you know, you're seeing vets, <laughs> I mean, going down the conspiracy rabbit hole again, 
veterans see the writing on the wall these days, like there's some seriously concerning shit happening in this world. And I think it, you can't say it scares some vets, but you know, to a big degree, it, it's extremely concerning to the point where veterans feel like they need to start preparing for things now, which is why I feel like I've had such a massive influx of veteran interest into the agricultural community because they're like, shit, teach me how to farm right now. You know, what do I need to know about this? Um, because they're thinking about, well, I'm going to go find this spot in the middle of freaking mountains of Tennessee where nobody can find me, buy this 40 acres and become self-sustaining. And that's, that's literally one of the two demographics of ads I get in my classes is they want a homestead, go off grid and disappear. Uh, or they want to look at this from the, from the perspective of being a viable business opportunity for them. And I work with both, obviously. I mean, the same principles are the same principles. And a lot of the, a lot of the vets that disappear off the grid wind up overproducing an amount of food and they want to start selling it anyway. So they turn into a business person ultimately anyway. So, you know, I'm teaching the same shit no matter which direction they want to go. It's just a couple of little considerations that they need to think about. But I think... I think there's so much concern in the world today that, you know, beans, bullets, and band-aids is, is becoming a, a accountable commodity among a lot of your, your public that have been places and seen things, and they want to make sure that they've got what they need, you know, and that even, that even kind of goes back to the whole vegan thing, too, where I, I've heard, I've heard it argued that we were vegans long before meat came along and i say horse shit to that because the whole reason that we were vegans back in those days was because we were one too poor to afford meat or two it wasn't widely enough available like it is today so we had to rely on beans and stuff like that to get protein sources back in those days i mean you can go into rural areas of North Carolina right now, find a little old lady who has been there her whole life, and she'll tell you about growing up in the 40s and 30s when they only got chicken or beef or pork at holidays or on Sundays at most mm. because they couldn't afford it. It was such a luxury item back in those days. They weren't vegans. You know, they weren't running around like telling everybody they're vegan in the first 10 seconds of them meeting someone like vegans do, you know, and trying to get everybody to drink their freaking Kool-Aid. But they they had no choice. They couldn't afford chicken or pork or shit. You know, or if they did, it was granny going out in the backyard, chopping the head off of a chicken first thing Sunday morning. And by the time everybody got home from church, she had chicken on or chicken pot pie or something ready to go. And that was it. You know, we are, we are om, omnivorous unless we can't access what we want, in my opinion. 
Yeah, you know? and that's another thing. The body's an amazing, an amazing thing, and it can adapt very well to whatever you you really whatever you put in it into it. I have sure. I, I have people in my life where all they eat is you know fast food and whatever, and they still grind it out. But it's like you know we were we were overseas six months straight eating only MREs and UGREs, which are the same thing, just bigger. That stuff is straight garbage. But guess what? We were still yeah. able to, we were still able to conduct operations. Your body will adapt. What, what we're talking about here is optimum nutrition for each individual. And sure, you know, you can run off of anything. I think my body prefers, you know, meat and meat products. I feel just fine yeah. and, and better when I'm, I'm needing to conduct my my business in my life when i eat that way but someone else may feel completely different yeah. you know there's 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 different you know there's different ways to to approach everything um we shouldn't we shouldn't sure. we shouldn't hate on on any one way or anyone's opinion but no no absolutely not absolutely not and i you know i won't hate on any opinion ever or what they want to do, but I think that we've just justified our bullshit into existence so deep in a level so deep intellectually that we refuse to look at another point of view or even ask the question, why did we, why or how did we even get here? You know? Yeah, and, become an ideological. Yeah, I mean, a lot, so, so much of the argument around so much of the stuff going around today is circular, circular logic type stuff it's you know well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do this because of that but i haven't considered what else was being controlled by that or what else had anything to do with what right. it is you're trying to take a stance with you know right, it's just right. sort of like it only matters to me and not to any of you or anything else from a ecological perspective on the planet but me i'm gonna fall on this sword and i'm gonna you know th this is the weird hill i'm gonna die on um and i'm just gonna say that everybody else is wrong and i'm not gonna think about any of the other external implica implications of my decisions mm -hmm. it's horseshit in my opinion you know if sure yeah we need to have the conversations and we need to we need to really put aside the militant division that we've instilled in each other um over over the past however many years at this point but everybody has become so hell-bent on dying on a sword or dying on a hill of opinion yeah and not even not even considering a different perspective that i think it's it's going to be our downfall our our intellect is our greatest our greatest asset but i think it's also going to be our biggest weakness as a human race you know we're going to think ourselves to death yeah i can attest to that man for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah i think it goes i know you can. it goes to you know like a philosophical dilemma you know there's no original reference to information and part of it too is because yeah. there is such an abundance of over information and it's overloaded and then it goes back to a simple thing yeah. of like sense making. You know, if I want to find a, <clears throat> a source of information, 
you know, we're taught in, you know, at the college level to look for a primary source, you know, sure. when it comes down to, to this, I don't consider myself a, an expert in ag. I do feel that there are a lot of therapy and therapeutic properties that come from it. But if I want to ask somebody about it, I'm going to come to you, you know, not, not some Yahoo who teaches sociology and runs me some stats that I don't know where they came from and uh, know, then make it ideological. I know a lot of PhDs that would tell you to run far, far away from me. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them, you know, and my, my, my question to them is, did you get your PhD and start working at the university as soon as you got your PhD or did you actually go out in the world and see some things? Because I think, you know, again, we're getting into Robert Elliott's opinion. I think that's the problem with the university system now is you, you're, you're, you're cannibalizing the intellectual shit that goes on in a, in a university now. So there's no real fresh perspectives. And then here comes this guy like me that's, got this completely different perspective on shit and i've got this look at you know well hell i can do anything in ag because i've had nobody there to corrupt me and say that we have to do it this way and because we've been doing it for the past 40 years this way well bullshit you know that's that's the part that i love so much about veterans is that they come in and they still have that creativity instead of being taught all of these this is the way it's done kind of stuff, you know, and they get creative in the space and they figure out new ways to do things. And it's just mind blowing to me how well that works for, for the veteran community, you know, it's, um, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens when some of these farms uh, that are veteran owned farms start to take off in like really, really interesting directions um, and see what they do in in the next next 10 years because i'm you know i'm really proud to see everybody in north carolina trying to work with each other like we do and that's that's pretty rare from other states i've been in you know it's sort of like a lot of other people are they're they're missing the energy or they're missing the 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 background like we've got so well here in north carolina with everybody looking at things from so many different views and perspectives from like doing DHHS with uh, going to the governor's working groups and seeing what everybody's doing there or, you know, getting rid of, of veteran suicide and stuff down to what you're doing. You guys are doing just hosting this kind of this podcast or going even deeper into your research and your work, Jose. It's just phenomenal how much stuff we've got going on here that's really going into positive directions. And it's because shit nobody's telling vets you can't do that and that's what i love about it you know it's not vets don't ask permission we ask forgiveness later or we'll just blow you up if we can't get that i guess you know whatever <laughs> we're gonna figure it out one way or another especially with bar heads yeah we'll find a way um yeah, there's a lot of negativity and pessimism that's uh, running rampant around here. And uh, sometimes I, I fall in that category, but I was, you know, Marines only exist to fight, man. And fuck, this is a fight till the end. I figured that out finally. And yeah, that's Pretty all much. I got, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it feels for me too. You know, it's sort of like the deck is constantly stacked against me and I just, 
just staying real and staying true to the game and keep on pushing forward and calling bullshit where I see it. And, you know, <laughs> sort of like there's a lot of people that don't like me in the industry and I'm good with that because, well, either you're helping or you're hindering one of the two. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. you got a, and you got a, an army, you know, well, what I'm saying? I mean, you know, it's it, at the end of the day, even on a veteran suicide level, at the end of the day, what's, in my opinion, what is going to alleviate all of the problems that we've got is by working together. Because no one person can, can really make shit different for another. It's all got to be connected, in my opinion. And that's, that's why, you know, if you're a veteran coming to me, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid immediately, you know, let's go, let's, let's do this. What can we do? But if, you know, if, if I get the inclination that, you know, it's, it's some sort of, how do I get veterans? How do I exploit veterans to make money off of their backs kind of thing that I've encountered a lot in this industry? Um, we're, we're going to have a lot of, a lot of problems, you know? So that's why time and time again, I keep coming back to the, I need to integrate veterans into what it is I'm doing. I need to build advisory boards and councils and stuff like that, that can start steering some of these things into bigger directions um, based off of some of the ideas and initiatives that I've started on and uh, kind of be a guiding force right now. I'm tr what I'm trying to do more than anything is to expand on what's possible with the vets that I've got coming to the table nowadays and i mean we've got some solid producers that are out there that know what they're doing and they're starting to get it down pat really well and um it's like there's no reason in this world why you guys shouldn't be starting to drive some of this train to to help you know amplify the voice and move our products into bigger directions and stuff like that and help the next veteran coming through the door there's no reason why why we shouldn't you know there's there's just so much so much deep intellectual knowledge that's out there in the veteran community that it's time and time again, you know, I keep just coming back to vets and it's sort of like, we've got to, we're going to be the ones that have to freaking fix this bullshit. I hate to say it, you know, and it's done at the small farm level and it's done by networking guys together. And that's how we stay alive and we keep cranking. In my opinion, I really feel that way, you know? Yeah, 100%, man. I've always, <clears throat> in everything they do, I always have that ag element because I understand the broader uh, implications of what it could do to the whole consciousness of the entire community. Sure. And, um, you know, whenever I'm, I get done with this damn book that I'm writing, um, you know, that's going to be at the heart of it is returning back to that or regressing back to that uh, old primer, that old reference point of you know getting your hands dirty reconnecting and understanding this life cycle of life death and and in between harvesting you know whatever it is whether it's a human relationship or whether it's your relationship to mother earth and uh you know it's always kept it you know in the back of my head and that's i have like that science fiction piece that i want to finish out which is called the farm and um pray to god that one day you know that these 
centers of excellence can somehow uh, accommodate this more, uh, you know, vast network of uh, veteran um, farmers. Yeah. Because I really do feel that it's, it's a must. Um, and I hope one day too, that, you know, I can stop looking at computers and uh, go back to the farm, you know, that's kind of like my hope is all I want to do is just farm and, and, and write, but not on computers. It's, that, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up because that's the same exact feeling I have. I just want to, I just want to go out there and play with cows and work with the soil and see what I can do and play out there, you know, and writing, writing books and stuff like that. Writing has always been something I'm, I love doing. And uh, I think I could turn that into my retirement if I wanted to pretty quick, but it's, in my opinion, there, I think we, we had to, we had to step up a bit and start taking the lead on some things to, to advance the message, you know, and that's, that's why we're stuck behind the computer trying to figure out how do we stay healthy sitting behind a freaking computer <laughs> instead of going out there and, you know, swinging a shovel and a pickaxe and, you know, putting in fences and shit. My assistant gets dry. He, he just goes crazy because he's like, dude, you're never around and I need your help on the farm. I'm like, I know, but I've got to, I got to be here. I got to do that. I got to talk about this, blah, 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 you know? And it's, it, putting pieces together so that, you know, I can free up everybody else and build a further voice for everybody is all what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, man, I totally, I can totally relate to wanting to just farm and write a book. You know, I totally get that, but you know, it's the least of what I do now. And um, it seems like herding cats is a more accurate description of what I do these days. <laughs> But man, I, I appreciate anyway. having you on, man. Yeah, thank you very much for coming and sharing that with us. Um, hopefully, you know, this gets out to enough people and maybe pushes some your way or or they'll at least maybe have a different different thought process about things after hearing some of this, if it's something they, you know, didn't consider was an issue before this, so. Well, that's just what I'm here for. Try to help everybody else out and figure out, figure out better ways forward from here. So thank y'all for having me on. And it's, uh, it's great to be on. I appreciate it. Yeah, brother. Yes, thank hey, you. Hey, hold on one moment. Let me give you an update. Um, I'm going to stop recording though. <laughs>